24 hours a day, 365 days a year. MI5's English language analysts listen to lawfully intercepted conversations, picking out essential information that will help us counter terrorism across the UK. They're the kind of people who don't miss a thing, who can listen for hours on end without losing concentration, who can pick out the important information and stay calm under pressure. They work well on their own and even better when they're briefing the team on what they've discovered. If this sounds like you, visit the MI5 website to find out more and apply. The Guardian. This week, the Scottish National Party announced they will hold a referendum on full Scottish independence. But what would this mean for the future of the UK if Scotland did go it alone? We're the guys who've grown up and becoming politically aware. We don't remember a time before devolution, really. You know, so now we're growing up and we're seeing our parliament and the parliament in London that's saying, no, you can't do that, you know, you can only go this far and no further. I'm Hume Yor, and this week I'll be exploring devolution in the United Kingdom. We'll be looking at Wales, where they recently voted for the Welsh Assembly to have greater powers. We now have a democracy. The sovereignty of the people of Wales lies now with the people, and I think that perhaps is a more important question than than having a, a seat at the United Nations. And in the complex political situation of Northern Ireland, what would further devolution achieve there? Unionists still regard themselves very much as unionists, nationalists very much as nationalists, and that's reflected in every election and every opinion poll. So I don't think it changes the dynamic in terms of ethnic and national allegiance. Let's start in Scotland. Our Scottish correspondent Severin Carell went to meet some young SNP members at Glasgow University to talk about independence and Devo Max, the alternative which would see Scotland remain within the UK but take control of all of its domestic affairs. I think there's probably a bit of fear with the older generation. You know, you can just look at what's happened basically since the Scottish Parliament's been there. That's only 10 years of our lives really and that's the biggest shift in Scottish politics in a long time. So I think we can actually see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel type thing. For the Scottish people it's proven that, you know, Scotland can look after herself as much as we've been allowed to. So Broadly, I think most people are in favour of full independence, but we're not going to you know, start fighting against Evil Max. It's, we'll take it as a step if it happens, you know. Yeah. I think broadly everyone is, most people I know are in favour of full right. independence. Do any of you guys believe genuinely that the issue is about Scotland being oppressed, being suppressed by the current relationship, being a more important part of the argument than Scotland's ability to just prosper in its own right? What's the driver for you? Is it a negative driver or a positive driver? For me, it's prim- primarily positive, but there is a bit of the negative, like you say, the talking like you were saying about the, this idea of an independence generation. I think that's an apt description of it because, you know, we're the guys who've grown up and becoming politically aware. We don't remember a time before devolution, really. You know, so now we're growing up and we're seeing our parliament and the parliament in London that's saying, no, you can't do that. You know, you can only go this far and no further. It's quite hard to square that circle if... You know, that's all you've known. Can you explain to me if any of you feel at all British? My brother-in-law is uh, from Yorkshire. My best mate is from down south. I go there all the time. You know, we've got, we, you know, we've got, our cultures are very similar. We, we love a lot of the same things. You know, that's not going to change as soon as we start paying tax to a different city. Like Tony said, you know, we, are, we do have quite similar cultures, but there are huge differences as well. And but, I mean, there's massive differences in culture within Scotland. Yeah, exactly. And as, yeah. I'm from Glasgow, yeah. so... And, I, Highlanders, and so I would have more in common different. with someone from Manchester, maybe, than someone from the Highlands, you know? 
Are you old enough to remember Cool Britannia when Tony Blair won in 1997? Yeah, that I whole remember. the whole vibe. Did that did that not do oh, anything for you? Passed me by in Inverness. Yeah, <laughs> not, not much. Uh, yeah, things can only get better, indeed. But, you know, yeah. Seth Carell with some of the bright young things of Glasgow. And this is the man driving the quest for independence. Alex Salmon is the leader of the SNP and the First Minister. You see, the case for the union depends on a negative. It depends on the idea that Scotland would be an economic basket case. Now, nobody, no serious economist or no serious person would actually believe that to be the case. But the fact that there is a, a presentation abroad among the Scottish population helped, encouraged, uh, enabled by... Uh, are unionist politicians, that that is the case. If they rest their case on a lie, then they'll lose. Glance across the North Sea, you'll see a country where oil and gas is an even greater share of the economy than it is in Scotland. Uh, and as opposed to having any difficulty in navigation, it's the only country in Western Europe running a budget surplus. It's got a, a, a fund uh, for the uh, future generations on reaching some £300 billion sterling now. If you go and ask somebody in Norway, when's your oil and gas going to run out? The answer is never, because the investment fund which they've built up over just over the last 15 years, actually, will never run out and provides stability and certainty to the Norwegian economy. Not just, uh, incidentally, guiding a path through uncertain times, but the only country in Western Europe able to chart a path through these uncertain times. I've always found it very bad politics, very bad life, actually, to start wondering what you're going to do when you lose. I think it's far better to explain what you'll do when you win. And incidentally, I won't lose. Alex Salmon. And I suppose he's seen as Mr Devolution at the moment. But while the desire for devolution is undoubtedly strongest in Scotland, the Welsh voted in March for measures that would mean bypassing Westminster and giving their assembly control of laws in certain areas. The Guardian's Stephen Morris went to Carmarthen to find out if there's a thirst for further devolution there. So, devolution, where do you think we're going? Where would you like us to be going? The vibe I seem to be getting is that so much sort of seems to hang on what happens to Scotland, what's the shape uh, of the Union uh, after Scotland. And although it's not many people, I think, in Wales are aware of Scotland uh, and, and the, the intricacies of the Union and the settlement, uh, I think what happens to Scotland over the next five or ten years uh, profoundly changes the nature of the, the Union. Ten years ago, I perhaps had a bit of fire in my belly for independence. Now it's become more of a nominal question. I think uh, the most important question in principle, since 1997 actually, is that we now have a democracy. The, the sovereignty of the people of, uh, of Wales lies now with the people. And I think that perhaps is a more important question than, than having a, a, a seat at the United Nations. So... You think Welsh people ought to be able to govern themselves? Yeah, we shouldn't be with England and them, just be independent. Can I ask somebody else? We don't Can want the Queen. You? <laughs> you don't want the Queen? No. Why not? Because the English killed our king and just took the title. What about the Prime Minister? What do you think of David Cameron? Are you, you happy David Cameron's Prime Minister? Well, I don't know about the Prime Minister, but with Wales and England... Although Wales meant to be part of Britain, I think that England gets more money than Britain, than Wales does. And more power. And more power. With the uh, university fees, I think Wales should be independent and make it um, 3,000 instead of 9,000 and not follow the England's rule. Uh, hello, my name is Yayan Wynne-Jones and I'm the leader of Plaid Cymru uh, in the National Assembly. We always felt that 
the next stage of devolution had to be some form of fiscal autonomy. You know, we'd envisage that uh, that probably would happen sometime in the next few years, but not quite as quickly as it looks as though it's coming onto the agenda, but we very much welcome that. And what is quite interesting is that the Conservative Lib Dem coalition seemed to be much more ready to talk about fiscal devolution or fiscal autonomy than Labour is. Because I think that uh, what Labour fears, I think, is not so much what's going to happen in Wales, but what it actually means to them and their ability to govern UK-wide. Just from going around Wales and talking to people on the street and local councillors, local politicians and so on, there seems more of a confidence about where you're going at the moment. More confidence as a nation, really. Even people who applied support as Labour support, everybody seems a bit more... Well, I think that the the devolution result was very good indeed. I don't think, you know, I, I was always confident that Wales would vote yes for lawmaking powers, but I don't think anybody envisaged that it would be quite as convincing. So I think we've come a long way since 1997, and it has built confidence. It means that people are much more ready to take, if you like, the next steps on the path uh, of devolution. You know, I, I, I would feel comfortable now about even taking the next step as well. So that's the view from Plaid. And this is the First Minister of Wales, Carwin Jones. He's been in that role for nearly two years. He's also leader of the Welsh Labour Party. There is, there is a strong appetite in Wales for devolution, deepening devolution, extending devolution in some areas, but not for independence, and certainly not for the, the maximalist model that, that Scotland may want to pursue. But we've just had, of course, new powers through a referendum. It's important that we know look to use those powers as people would want us to. I think that's far more of a priority than sitting down and thinking, right, there are other areas now that we'd like to see devolved as well. I think that's work for a different type. Is there any frustration as First Minister that you still have this Westminster hanging over you with so much power still over defence, police? I'm a unionist, so I accept that. Uh, I am a, I'm the leader of the Welsh Labour Party. I'd prefer to have a Labour government, of course I would, in Westminster, but I accept the fact as a unionist that there is a UK government uh, which, is, which will always have the, the, the uh, major role in terms of defence in terms of social security in my view as well and in many other areas as well you accept that if you're a unionist if you're somebody who believes in independence you, you don't mm-hmm. having accepted that um, I'll always make the case for, for devolution uh, for differences in approach across the whole of the UK while at the same time uh, supporting the existence of the UK mm-hmm. So what about Northern Ireland? All very complex, as we know. But interesting to discover how the argument is playing there. Would devolution change the dynamic in Northern Ireland, where voting patterns are very much divided along nationalist and unionist lines? Would an independent Ireland be seen as a step towards a united Ireland? Earlier I spoke to The Guardian's Belfast correspondent, Henry MacDonald. I think despite the devolution coming to fruition, if you like, and partnering being established, the ethnic and religious identities are still pretty solid. You only have to look at the voting patterns to uh, see that as evidence. Unionists still regard themselves very much as unionists, nationalists very much as nationalists, and that's reflected in every election and every opinion poll. So I don't think it changes the dynamic in terms of ethnic and national allegiance. Is there an extent to which they're looking at what's happening elsewhere um, in Scotland and to some extent in Wales um, and thinking, well, does this mean anything for us? Well, I think in terms of unionism, um, Scotland would be more alarming, if you like, uh, or would have been when 
uh, you know, the surge in support for the nationalists, the SNP. Um, you know, if if there was ever to be Scottish independence, um, obviously unionists would be concerned that you know some of their closest allies in in Britain are in, in the central belt in Scotland and have uh, they have a strong orange tradition there. But they would be you know detached from that. That that this would be the start of the breakup of the union. However, I think that's pre eurozone crisis. I think that's pre. Um, the kind of problems that the EU have been beset by. I think we shouldn't underestimate the uh, the impact of that because obviously that's had a, an impact on the viability of a an independent Scotland within the EU. Uh, and I think also it also throws a serious question mark over could the Irish Republic afford to absorb Northern Ireland? Answer, probably no. Not, certainly not in the current crisis, which is going to be on for a long time. To some extent, the argument's being overtaken by practicalities. The argument has been indeed taken over by practicalities. The practicalities of a of a, a bankrupt nation, nation south of the border, a state, if you like, in the north as part of the UK, which is heavily dependent on the umbilical cord of uh, public finance from the Treasury. I mean, for instance, uh, let me give you an example of this. Uh, the Stormont Executive wanted to abolish uh, a tax on... Uh, transatlantic flights from Belfast International Airport. Continental Airlines were threatening to pull out of Belfast International if this tax continued on its passengers. Uh, the only way that the Stormont administration could get rid of that tax, which has been uh, no, no, not an insignificant achievement in, get, in scrapping it, they had to get approval from the Treasury. They had to go to Big Brother in, in, in Whitehall and ask for permission to scrap the tax in order to keep Continental Airlines and other US uh, air companies at Belfast International, so I think that sort of gives you the extent of the continued reliability of the devolved administration in Belfast on London. I'm now joined in the studio by Alan Trench from the blog Devolution Matters, and on the line we have Joan McAlpine, an MSP from the Scottish National Party, and The Guardian's assistant editor, Mike White. Welcome to you all. Um, Alan, let me start with you. Um, has devolution been a success so far, do you think, or have been the winners and losers? Well, it's given an exp- uh, an expression to the earnings for national self-expression and self-government in Scotland and Wales. It's been a rather tentative reform, certainly so far, and I think that many of the problems that have emerged in the last few years have come from that very degree of caution and the fact that the scheme of devolution that was put in place in the late 1990s was not comprehensively thought through. So they created devolved elected bodies, but they didn't think about finance reform, for example. Um, and those chickens are now very much coming home to roost. So I would say it's it's been a significant success, but not a complete one, because it hasn't gone as far as it should have done. Joan, it seems to be going well for you. Why do you need more of it? Well, the, as, as Alan has, has just said, uh, um, we have a parliament and we have independence in some areas. For example, we, can, we have complete control over our NHS and we're doing a hell of a lot better than is happening down south. But we don't control the finances. And if we had control of the finances and control of the economic levers, we think that we'd do a much better job than George Osborne and David Cameron. What price the UK? Well, the UK is actually the most centralised country in Europe fiscally after Greece. Greece is the only more centralised country than the UK. And I think that probably tells you something. The UK is also one of the most unequal societies in Europe. Um, as your figures the other day on child poverty showed, we think that we can build a better kind of society. We can be a kind of light in the north 
for the rest of the UK, but really it's up to people in the rest of the UK to think about the kind of society that they want. I think in Scotland we're pretty clear about the way forward, and that's what we voted for in May. But I think in, for people in the rest of the UK, it's really for them to think really hard about what kind of country they want to live in. Michael White, this is said to be a kind of dangerous time for the UK in terms of the, the progress being made in, in, in the countries that have devolved government. Uh, is that how it's been seen in Westminster? Well, Cabinet Minister said to me the other day, uh, every day when Alex Salmon wakes up, his first political priority is break up of the UK. That's Mr Salmon's declared objective. That may be a bit unfair, but you know what he means. For David Cameron and Nick Clegg, it isn't their first priority every day when they wake up. It's different. I agree with quite a lot of what Joan has said and quite a lot of what Alan has said. I don't think the devolution people in 98-99 didn't think about finance. I think they thought... You know, that's really tricky for both sides of the argument um, uh, over money and Scotland for reasons listeners know about. Uh, and let's do that later. Ron Davis, the great badger hunter, but a Welsh secretary and a very you know good operator once said, you know what I'm going to say, all of you, it's a cliche. Devolution is not an event, it's a process. And it's gradually evolving in ways, some of them predicted, some of them unpredictable. And that's where we're going. We, we don't know the end of the journey yet. And Joan probably has a different uh, destination from me. Uh, but it, it's evolving. We'll see what happens. Can I just come in there and a point that that Michael made? I know you were quoting this anonymous uh, cabinet minister. I work very closely with Alex Salmond and I can tell you his first thought when he wakes up in the morning is how can I make Scotland better today? And I think you can be sure that there isn't a single UK cabinet minister that has that thought when they wake up. Well, what about the Scottish secretary? I imagine that's his day job, isn't it? Personally, given his track record, I don't think that's the the thought of the Scottish secretary, actually. I think certainly in his uh, current record, it's uh, how can I dish it to the SNP? Well, uh, he's not here to answer for himself. I'm sure he he, he would say he does the best he can. Do you think that um, you're saying that Alex Salmon doesn't wake up every morning thinking, how can I make um, Scotland independent? But how how is Westminster viewed from there? Because uh, there there, there was um, a view expressed, I think, by Alex Salmon, who was saying the the coalition, the Tories, the Lib Dems really can't tell us anything about uh, uh, what they would want to happen here because they, their writ doesn't really um, apply here anymore. They haven't got any. Uh, they did so badly in, in the election that they don't really have the authority to tell us what to do. No, they didn't. Uh, they uh, they polled twenty percent of the vote. Um, there was uh, less than half what the SNP polled. The SNP in the last Scottish election. Uh, polled uh, the greatest of any winning party in any UK election uh, since 1970, um, apart from Blair in 97, who got 0.1% more. Uh, we got 45.5% and he got 45.6% of the vote. Uh, so, you know, I think we, we, we have a, a pretty stonking majority and I think there was a very clear message. And I think, you know, for for Michael Moore and David Cameron to start dictating uh, to Scotland is misguided and wrong. How do they and dictate, Joan? Scared to death of you, I'd say, as an well, observer of these things. Terrified well, you know, of we've you. We've actually been very reasonable since since the election. You know, we're, our, our, we want Scotland to be a normal country. We want it to be independent. We want an equal partnership with our neighbours. But since the election, we've been reasonable. We've said, OK, you know, that's our ultimate uh, aim. But we've got a Scotland bill going through Westminster. He's some ways we can improve it to give ourselves economic levers, to focus on a, a Plan McBee so that we can 
get get our country out of recession, get it moving again. And they haven't they haven't made one iota of move, one iota of movement. They've spent the whole they've spent the whole of the year attacking the SNP instead of thinking how how can we improve things for Scotland. They're about to impose a, a legislation on us in the Scotland bill that will actually leave Scotland worse off financially. Let me bring in and Alan we'll there. Can, can I bring in, in Joe? Sorry, can I bring Treasury? in Alan Trench there? Yes, two two things. One of the problems that we have here is what has become a very polarised constitutional debate between the SNP on the one side and the, the Unionist parties collectively on the other. And because they've conducted it in the way, particularly at the Unionist end in the way that um, conventional partisan politics are conducted in the UK. This has actually been a considerable disservice to the people of Scotland and to the peoples of the other parts of the UK because you have to deal with these constitutional issues in a different manner. The SNP are extremely effective at constitutional politics. They're streets ahead of the other parties. They're now trying to catch up but they're doing so by using sheer brute force rather than the more subtle approach that I would argue is necessary and that one sees in most of the other successful states around the world that have managed these sorts of situations. Joan, uh, Alan mentioned brute force. Danny Alexander talk, uh, accused Alex Salmon of, I think it was the quote was grudge and grievance politics. Is that fair? That's completely unfair. As I, as I said to you, we, we've offered we've offered uh, a, a considerable compromises. We've tried to work with them. We've suggested areas where they could devolve more power. Uh, we've asked them to explain the mechanism by which they're going to cut our block grant after the Scotland Bill becomes law. And they haven't actually engaged on any of these issues. And they've spent quite a lot of time looking for technical reasons that they can deny the Scottish people a say in their future. I think that's going to go down like a lead balloon with the electorate up here. You know, this idea that, oh, we're going to look, you know, pour through the Scotland Act and find some technical reason where we can uh, not allow them to have a referendum or where we can dictate the wording of their referendum. That's, uh, you know, Simon Jenkins, I think Simon Jenkins got it absolutely spot on, you know. For, well, we don't say that around here. You know, <laughs> uh, in The Guardian the other day when he says... Um, Federations collapse from the stupidity of their leaders rather than the Bolshevism of their members. We've talked a lot about Scotland, Mike. Uh, let's broaden out a little. Uh, the drive's obviously coming from Scotland, but to what extent will that influence what happens elsewhere? And I'm thinking Wales and Northern Ireland. Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating, this. I come from Cornwall. A uh, lot more flags of St. Piran up in Cornwall uh, nowadays than when I was a boy. That's like the Scottish Saltair, but it's black and white instead of blue and white. Um, I mean, Joan had a good point a minute ago when she sets up the English people to decide what they want to be. But, of course, this redefinition is being driven in different ways from Northern Ireland, Wales uh, and Scotland because um, they're different countries with, with, with different histories. It's much more cultural in Wales. We could probably agree on that, couldn't we, Joan? Whereas it's very political in, um, in Scotland, which has its own legal system and all the rest of it. It's very much um, a nation within the United Kingdom, clearly so. The others, it's much more complicated. Uh, but what the English want, I don't think they know. Um, I really don't. Do you, Alan? Tell I, me what I, they I, what I'd we want. I'd entirely agree. I mean, more, even more seriously than that, while the Scots are very good at having these debates within Scotland, um, even though they're conducted in a pretty partisan way, and the Welsh have developed quite a remarkable degree of sophistication in a very short time in trying to work out what the shift is from being a cultural nation to a political nation, the English don't even know, don't even know how to do this. And an awful lot of the politics is a politics of grievance. And it's hampered by the fact that the constitutional situation is so... 
um, difficult, that most of the solutions are hugely, hugely difficult to make work. So that things like an English parliament, English votes for English... That's laws, gone away, hasn't it? Well, no, they haven't gone away. They've very much not gone it's away. It's gone away in the coalition. They don't talk about that. Tories don't talk about it. But well, surely nationalism as a, a vehicle coming, for I mean, the politics have, of grievance is true the world over, isn't it? It's one option. It's well, one way of addressing discontent and jo- dissatisfaction. Joan, I'm sure, would be the first to tell you um, the positive side of Scottish nationalism. Yep. And oh, yeah, we're, about cre- we're about creating a fairer society. Everything that we've done since we came to power in 2007 is about trying to create a fairer, a fairer society. I mean, I think... Uh, fairer the, to who? The business, I think English people haven't addressed this because they haven't they haven't had to address it. Well, um, they, we, you know, we have similar issues, you know. I tell you one thing, talking to voters in Winchester... King Alfred the Great's capital, we all remember, at the weekend. One of the things they say when you ask them about Scotland, they say it's unfair because they get so much more money than us. I know you come back on me, Joan, but fair for one isn't necessarily fair for the other. It's it's tricky. They say all this stuff about care for the elderly and tuition fees and all that stuff, you know, they seem to be doing all right and uh, we're paying for it. I know you're going to tell me that's not so, well, that's but that's what they think. that's obviously not so because we get, uh, we, get a block, we get a block grant and we actually, if you actually look at the... Not the Scottish government's figures, but the the national statistics. We pay in more than we actually get. Does out. that include the oil? Yes, it does. Ah, well, the that's oil a big question. Is, I mean, the oil, it actually includes a geographical share of the oil revenues. Um, the, the oil and gas that lies within English waters would stay with with England. I mean, those figures are always problematic, of course, Why? because they depend they're not highly. Problematic. Well, they're, they're, they're high. No, they they are, Joan, for the simple reason that they depend very much on the volatility of oil revenues. So it depends on production and oil price. Well, do you know about? <laughs> you, do you know where oil revenues have gone in the last uh, ten years? You know, the oil, oil revenues are volatile up the way. They've risen. Oh, they have, but they, 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 they can go down as well. And, and that you, yeah, I don't think there's a single economist in the whole world that would suggest that oil revenues are about to plummet any time soon. Joan, I've got two choices. I can go and get someone from our finance desk or we can kind of move on a bit. Um, talk really, to me a bit about Devo Max. You know, our, our country's, our country's control of its own nat- our natural resources is, is, is pretty important. And, you know, a lot, it's the reason why there, there have been a lot of countries who, who have wanted to, to um, become, uh, govern themselves because they want control of their own nat- national... But obviously we can argue here and now about what, um, about what they're worth, but um, I'm not sure we'll get very far. Talk to me about Devo Max and why um, that, that might be a good way forward. Alex Salmon was talking about the kind of lesser um, vote that you might have in, in the referendum, not full independence, but um, partial independence. Why, why do you think that would be a good idea? And why don't you like the idea of a yes-no vote? Because uh, the Prime Minister and Nick Clegg seem to think that when you have your referendum, it should just be a straightforward yes-no question. It's really up to us what question we want to ask. We have the mandate. The Scottish pe- the, uh, lives, the decision is for the Scottish people, and it's really up to us. Uh, if people in Scotland come forward and say, we would like a second question, and there's a large body of opinion in Scotland that would like a second question on uh, what you call Devo Max, then obviously we'll consider that. That's what Alex Salmon said. And the reason for Devo Max is not something that you can separate from from our, our natural resources. I mean, we contribute 9.4% of the revenue to the UK um, when we only have 8.4% of the U- UK's population. That's really that's really important. And we get 9.3% of public expenditure back. So that's an extra £1,000 a head for every Scot. Um, that's what Devo Max is. 
once we have Devo Max, uh, and it will happen, uh, we'll get control of those resources. And we'll also be able to uh, run our economy in such a way that focuses on the needs of our economy, not the needs of the southeast of England. Mike, dear Westminster, worried I, about I, I contribute Max? more than my share to the uh, UK tax base as well, but I'm not thinking of running my own uh, uh, e- economy. Important it's point. So important point You're about. Not a important point. I know. I know. I'm only teasing. <laughs> I mean, actually, I, I'm only teasing. Like, I'm I mean, only I think that kind of comment. I think that kind of facetious comment. It's not facetious. Kind of explains why. The UK government's getting it wrong. You know, it's an incredibly patronising attitude, and you hear it all the time. I'm to blame for what I say, not the UK government. Don't blame them for what I say. Blame Mike White. Um, The reason, the the reason, uh, um, um, uh, Alex, who's a pretty canny politician, uh, whenever I say he's the smartest, most successful politician operating in the United Kingdom at the moment, I get accused of patronising too. People are oversensitive. Um, The reason he wants a second option on uh, Devo Max in the referendum is the obvious one: Uh, the independence uh, vote. Really rises above 30% of the uh, Scottish uh, electorate, doesn't it? So it may be predictable, but it's pretty well, clever in some ways, isn't it? The last opinion poll is within the Scottish newspaper, so you won't be aware of it, but the last well, might opinion poll them, showed you know. independence at 39%. You know, it's, I, I, it's I'm still also 11% amazed shy. at the number of people that keep telling us how, how small the, num- the size of the pro-independence vote is. That's, you know, that's we've now got 40%, even when it was 30%. That's of people who would go out and vote yes tomorrow. Uh, that's a huge number. And I think it was Neil Asherson that said that if, if there was any other country in the world where, you know, one in three of the population at that time wanted a completely different constitutional arrangement, that would be regarded as a crisis. Alan Trent? Um, I mean, what we've had for quite a long time from very good quality public opinion data is that the preferred option of most Scots has been, when they're offered a range of options, um, self-government within the union. Uh, they want extensive devolution within the union. The the problem that we're at now is... Is that what we'll the sort of Catalan, the, the Barcelona well, solution? Well, quite what that means is another question. Um, but it's, it, it may be something like that. It might be Devo Max. It might be something less than Devo Max. But we do know that that's the, the firm constitutional preference of Scots and has been since the late 1990s. Um, th- there's been remarkably little shift in public opinion within Scotland. Um, and interestingly, the Welsh are on very much the same page. They want extensive self-government within the union, including fiscal powers. Um, the problem is that that's not an option that, that is being offered to them by London. The, the, the measures that are set out in the present Scotland Bill are so attenuated that it does not put... Um, the, the Scottish devolution on the page that the majority of the, that the plurality of Scots seem to want to be on, and it's in those circumstances that it's it's possible to make the sorts of arguments that the SNP very effectively has um, about independence as the best way forward. It's because the, London is not offering actually what Scots want rather than anything else. Mike, we're in Belfast. Um, where does Northern Ireland fit in here? I said a moment ago, every case is different. The Spaniards have what they call asymmetrical devolution. Different provinces, different history in that complicated country. I've been reading about the Spanish Civil War. It's terrifying, and you forget how diverse Spain is. Um, They have different arrangements. It's quite expensive, but it sort of more or less works. Um, Northern Ireland is pulled both ways. You... Again, back to Winchester, you stop people and say, do you think of yourself as English or British? And they say, well, no, I think of myself as British because my father's Irish. Several people have said that. Or my mother's Scots. Uh, and other people say, no, I'm English. Uh, only one guy said, incidentally, I'm a European, but he lived in France. So it's complicated. And uh, uh, the uh, Ulster Prod uh, I spoke to said, 
oh, I'm British and defined ourselves in terms of loyalism. But people who came with Catholic uh, 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 a cultural and historical background, of course, think of themselves as either British or primarily Irish. But we can all have multiple identities, it seems to me. And, you know, if the Scottish people vote for independence, personally I'd regret it, but they have every right to do so. Uh, and Scotland has existed as England has existed in many forms. I was reading a book about the Vikings the other day and finally worked out why the northernmost mainland county in Britain, Sutherland, is called Southland because it was once part of the Viking Empire and it was a southern bit. Well, it just goes to show. Places change, so we'll see what happens. But um, it's it's, it's, it's one we oughtn't to do in this, as Alan said, this extremely sort of point scoring. And if, I, if I, Joan thought I was point scoring off her, I apologise, I didn't mean to. But it's such an interesting subject. And, and Wells, what's happening with the psychology in Wells? Because um, people seem much, more, much less driven towards um, full independence. I think the figures of full independence are, are very poor. The First Minister says he thinks it will be a backward step. Well, the, the, the First Minister and Labour collectively think that. Um, and there is an ongoing debate with Implied Cymru, which is much more divided about whether it's in favour of independence or not than the SNP certainly is. Um, I mean, there is a meaningful debate to be had in Plaid because Plaid's origins are as a, as a movement of national self-assertion and, in the first instance, cultural expression with a political manifestation. Um, what's happened in the last 10 years, I think, is a very remarkable evolution to, to the point where there is a pretty broad consensus, certainly among politicians and a political elite in Wales that they want pretty extensive self-government. Um, there are big questions about the financing of that and we've had in the course of the last week the appointment of the Silk Commission announced which is going to, to look at, fis at fiscal issues though the terms of reference for that have been clipped quite considerably um, and um, quite a lot of the big issues are going to be pursued intergovernmentally by the Welsh Government with the UK Government rather than through the Commission. One interesting thing I read was that um, since the devolved parliament in Wales, that, that people have been actually more willing to describe themselves as British, which I found a little strange. Um, I haven't seen the Moreno, the figures on what's, what we call the Moreno question, which is this question where you ask, do you, do you feel yourself English, Brit English, British, Welsh, British? more one than the other and so on. But is there a possibility that they maybe have reached a point of equilibrium and so there, there isn't that uh, I don't know, I hunger think, to be completely independent? They're actually happy where they are. I, I, think, I, think the, I think the institutional process is far from complete in Wales. Um, there are still some very big questions and which will play out, again, because even the settlement that was put in place thanks to the referendum um, in March um, is still, appears to me, quite a long way short of what the people of Wales want. Um, and it's institutionally very difficult to make work as well. So these issues about the question of devolving possibly further powers, of how you actually manage relationships between Westminster and the National Assembly on the legislative side, um, of what you do about finance, these are big questions that are going to have to be resolved. And then lurking behind all this, of course, I mean, although Michael says it's not a live issue at the moment, is the question of what you do about England and the West Lothian question. And as this process accelerates in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, the West Lothian question becomes more and more of a, of a, of a question with real bite. Um, the point at which I think it snaps people's legs off is if you were to get to the point of devolution, Max. 
Mike, how's this going to play out in Westminster finally? Um, are, are they looking at this as, as a serious issue that really needs grasping? We read about, uh, particularly in Scotland, uh, new press offices being sent over there, a plan to send more and more ministers over there to, to say, look, we really are interested in Scotland. We're not just an English coalition. Um, are they seeing this as being uh, a serious issue or are they seeing it as being something that will... It's always harder for the Tories because, as Joan said earlier, uh, Tories and Lib Dems <clears throat> have done badly in Scotland in recent years, the sort of legacy of, of Margaret Thatcher was never popular in Scotland, and Labour in office in Britain, so that most of the great offices of state for 13 years were held by Scots uh, uh, in uh, the Westminster government, kind of, a Scottish friend of mine was saying the other day, treated the Scottish Labour Party as a sort of outpost of the UK uh, uh, Labour Party, whereas Rodri Morgan appointed against Tony Blair's will in Cardiff Bay as the first minister, more popular when he finished, a sort of slight Alex Salmon touch of charm about uh, uh, Rodri. Um, Rodri wasn't seen as London's creature, quite the reverse. So there's a kind of problem of perception there. Uh, that's why the Tory candidate, one of them, Murdo Fraser, for the leadership of the Tory party, says we ought to do what uh, uh, federalised countries do in other parts of the world. We have a quite a different national party for the federal elections from the one you do in the region. We'll have to call ourselves something else if we're going to take on the uh, uh, SNP in Scotland. Now, I don't know the answers to that because uh, I'm not there, but I think they are taking it uh, more seriously. Jim Murphy put um, Margaret Curran in as the Shadow Scottish Secretary, former MSP at Holyrood, former Minister at, uh, at Holyrood, uh, a Glasgow uh, uh, MP now. And I think, you know, all the reserve powers departments, in other words, bits which haven't been given to Holyrood, have now got a Scottish MP on the Labour team. And Cameron promises us that they're going to, you know, take on the issues and uh, take on Mr Salmon and get down to core issues to have a more informed debate. But he has debate. to, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he, he does have to. to. They have a Conservative the Prime Minister answer, can't preside my, over the breakup of the UK. My long-winded answer, the short answer is, yes, I think they are going to engage uh, seriously, and the public, both sides of the argument, would benefit from a better, uh, better debate in which the English also take part. Because 20 years ago, Malcolm Rifkin said in this Guardian office, it's not what the, uh, uh, the London newspapers report about Scotland in the Scottish editions that matter, it's what they tell their readers in London about what's going on uh, in, in Scotland. And I'm afraid Fleet Street has let down the union, you know, before the politicians did. We don't report Scotland enough, and I wish to God we did. Well, here on our podcast, we do our best, but that's all we have time for on this edition. Uh, my thanks to Mike White, to Alan Trench, and to Joan McAlpine. Uh, the producer of this Guardian Focus podcast was Peter Sale. I'm Hugh Muir. Thank you for listening. great downloads go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio